No words of mine, friend, can adequately convey the joy that I feel in my heart in being here tonight. In the first place, it's good to be back in Memphis. I lived in this city for about a quarter of a century, during which time I held more than a thousand gospel meetings. And so to drive up and down these streets or to ride up and down them as I have today brings back many fond memories of days now in the past. Also, it's a real joy to me to be here at the Getwell Congregation. My acquaintance with this church began at least 30 years ago, and over that period of time I have preached in this pulpit time after time after time. As a matter of fact, the brethren here have me down here each last Lord's Day of the year, and I've been doing that for years. I cannot remember when I first began to preach here on the last Lord's Day of the year. I do not know of a finer congregation anywhere. Are people more dedicated, more consecrated, more loyal to the cause of Christ? I have been associated with elderships, good, bad, and indifferent, for 50 years. I do not know of finer eldership than the Getwell eldership. And certainly there is not a gospel preacher among us finer, more able, more dedicated than the Garland Elders. It's a real joy to me to have the privilege to participate, along with Brother Tom Warren and so many others of you, in this excellent lectureship. I'd like to say just a word and to bring you greetings from the Gospel Advocate, for I am now uh, engaged where I spend the weekdays that each weekend, somewhere in a gospel meeting, a weekend meeting, somewhere in the United States. I've never worked as hard in my life as I am now, nor did I ever enjoy it as much. I have had for the last four years a perfect relationship with Brother Ira Noah. On not one single matter has he and I differed. I have found him to be as loyal to the truth, as anxious for us to print the truth in the Gospel Advocate as I am. And I have enjoyed particularly the enthusiasm, the zeal, the drive that he has, that he brings to bear in any situation that he may be in. Good to be here tonight. I am to speak to you on some errors of the United Pentecostal Church. I'm glad that the brethren said some errors. Uh, there are numerous ones, and I have selected a few of them that I am to discuss this evening. Perhaps you're aware of the fact that this organization is one of several holiness groups that had their origin somewhere near the beginning of this century when they alleged that there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit some of them claim that they were able to speak with tongues and to perform miracles. The United Pentecostal group differs from other holiness groups in that it teaches that there is but one person in the Godhead and that this is Jesus. This is somewhat of a theoretical question until it finds practical application in the fact that they believe that in order to baptize scripturally, that one must baptize in the name of Jesus, using that as a formula. 
when it is pointed out to them that the Lord in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, said, Go teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They then reply that the Son is the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that to baptize in the name of Jesus is the equivalent of baptizing into the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the practical aspect of the question that we shall discuss this evening. My procedure will be this. Number one, to set out the arguments they make, the passages upon which they rely, to reply to those arguments, and then to set out, at least in part, what the Scriptures really teach upon this question. Generally, they begin by citing the Lord's statement in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. And they then deduce from that that they are one person, that Jesus and the Father are the same person, and that this passage affirms that fact they allege. A second argument is based upon the statement that Jesus made to Philip, when in John 14, in the context of verses 1 through 10, that he said to Philip, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. This statement grows out of Philip's request to the Lord that he would show them the Father, and this would suffice. Then the Lord said, Have you been with me so long and have not seen the Father? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. So from that they conclude that Jesus is the Father and that he so affirms it in this passage. Then they point to Paul's statement, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, in a reference to our Lord where it is said that in him, that is in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And thus infer from that that he is then the entire Godhead. They also cite statements that are to be found in Isaiah chapter 43, 44, 45, where repeatedly God is said to be one. And they thence conclude that since God is one, that there cannot be three persons in the Godhead. And thus deduce that that one person is Jesus. And then generally they conclude their arguments by citing a statement that is found in Job, Job chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, where the inspired writer rebukes certain ones for receiving persons secretly and alleges that we are the ones who are seeking persons rather than persons. As remote as that may appear to you, that's one of their arguments. These are the major arguments, in fact, these exhaust the arguments that these people make in an effort to sustain that position. Now here again, as I indicated to you today, is an argument, an old heresy in a new dress. It's amazing how these things come up during the centuries. Most of the doctrines that are today being propagated, false in nature, had their counterparts 
in the apostasy following the apostolic age. For example, let me read to you from the historian Moshan. This is from his book 1, uh, Century 2, Part 2, Chapter 5, page 149. The numerous evils and discords which arose from combining Oriental and Egyptian philosophy with the Christian religion began to be increased about the middle of this century by those who brought Grecian philosophy with them into the Christian church. As the doctrines held by the Christians respecting the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and respecting the twofold nature of the Savior, were least of all in agreement with the precepts of this philosophy, they first endeavored to so explain these uh, that they could be comprehended by reason. This was attempted by a very distinguished man and confessor at Rome. Now listen. Discarding all real distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he taught that the whole Father of all things joined himself to the human nature of Christ. They denominated the man Christ, the Son of God, and held that to this Son, the Father of the universe of God, so joined himself as to be crucified and endured pangs with the Son. Now, that's a heresy that started in the third century and is continually propagated by various sects across the years. Now, I think I have stated fairly the arguments. There's one other matter to which they allude, and I'll mention, and then we'll call your attention to what the book really teaches about this. They take the statement of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, which is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Bear in mind that that was repeated in the synagogues and is till this day in this country. I remember visiting a synagogue right here in Memphis several years ago, and I heard that repeated. They repeated all over the country on Friday evening. The Hebrew, Shema Israel Adonai Elohim Ehod. Ehod being one. And sometimes, in order to make it appear that Christians believe in three gods, They'll shout again and again, Ehod, 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 one, 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 not three. So the argument that these people make is exactly the same, that the Jews make in an effort to oppose the deity of our Lord and the nature of the Godhead. Now then, let's take a look at some wonderful truths that are set out with reference to the nature of God. It is a remarkable fact that the word God, whether it be translated from the various Hebrew words of the Old Testament or the Greek theos of the New, actually names the divine nature. That is, the name of the divine nature is God. Because there is but one divine nature, there is but one God. But as we shall clearly see, the Bible teaches that there are three persons who possess that one nature and under the figure of the synecdoche, where a part may stand for the whole and the whole for a part, each member of the Godhead is called God in the Bible. Often the Father. John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There the Father is distinguished from the Son, and the Father is called God. But sometimes... The Son is distinguished from the Father, and the Son is called God. 
In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There the Word is called God. And to identify that Word, deeper into the context we read, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among men. The Greek verb for dwelt is there, pitched his tent among men. That is, our Lord is represented as having come down into a tent of flesh here on earth for a while to live. So there... The Son is called God. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is called God. An example is in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. On the occasion of the effort of Ananias and Sapphira to practice deception on the early church, Peter confronted them and said to them, Who put it in your hearts to lie unto the Holy Spirit? And in the same context, he added, You've not lied to man, you've lied to God. There the Holy Spirit is called God, so it's entirely in order, in keeping with biblical phraseology, to talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How many gods? One. How many persons possess the God nature? Three. Evidence of that is to be seen in the plural pronouns that are used in connection with deity in the sacred writings. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and God said, and God said, who said it? God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. Note, if you will, the plural pronouns associated with the word God there. Obviously, clearly, unmistakably, an allusion to the Godhead. Actually, that idea is more than handed up. In the very first verse of the first chapter of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God there translates the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the plural form. I have one of the words of God, El. The verb of the passage created, bara in Hebrew, is singular. Remarkably, we have here a plural substantive and a singular predicate. A plural noun and a singular verb. In English, of course, the verb must agree with the subject and number and person, but not in Hebrew. And so there is in this very first reference to God some hint of that plurality in the divine nature. And so beyond all doubt, this is taught. Furthermore, the person of the pronouns is quite significant. As an example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, references to the Father, I, me, mine, and so on. First person singular. In the reference to the Son, in the same context, Hebrews 1, 5, following this, thee, thy, thine. Actually, there's a conversation recorded there that, it, that occurred between the Father and the Son. After the Father had, the Son had addressed the Father, the Father addressed the Son and said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Note the second person there. But with reference to the Holy Spirit, it's third person. John chapter 16, verse 13. How be it when he, who is the Spirit of truth, shall come, he shall guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself. Whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. So the persons of the pronouns, they're definitely and clearly established there. There are three that bear record in heaven. This is affirmed, as you know, by John. The three are the Father, 
the Word and the Holy Spirit. There are three that bear record on earth. This is in 1 John 5, 7 and 8. The three that bear record on earth are the Spirit, the water, and the blood. But just as the Spirit is not the water and the water is not the blood, so the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not the same in heaven. That's very definitely false. Furthermore, the name of the Father and the name of the Son are clearly distinguished in the sacred writings. In Revelation chapter 14, and uh, also this idea is also suggested in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Notice, though, particularly the distinction here in the Revelation statement. And I saw in the hell the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his name and the name of his Father written in their foreheads. Now, how do you get the idea that he is the Father? from a statement of that type. Oftentimes, the Father and the Son are distinguished clearly from each other. Look at this statement from Psalms chapter 2, verses 13, uh, on to the close of the chapter. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers took counsel against Jehovah and against his anointed. Now that Jehovah is one person here, his anointed is another. Look again at a familiar passage, the seven unities. Of Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all. Well, just as the Father, just as the as baptism and faith are different, so the Father and the Lord in that passage are different. Cannot confuse one any more than you can the other. Look at this remarkable statement from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the truth, but in the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. What did he do? He went to heaven. Why did he go to heaven? To appear in the presence of God. But if he is himself the Father, he didn't have to go to heaven in order to be in his presence. He was in his presence here as much as he would have been in, in heaven. But the passage affirms that he had to go to heaven to be in his Father's presence. Therefore, while he was on earth, he was separated to that extent from his Father. Thus the Father and the Son are not the same person. Look at another one here. These are arguments that I've used repeatedly in debates with these characters. Christ is now reigning at God's right hand, having been raised up on David's throne. He is to reign there until his enemies are destroyed. Then he is to deliver the kingdom to the Father. Now I want you to get the background of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, every man is on order. Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Now watch the order of events. Then cometh the end. When he, that is Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. What will mark the termination of his reign? His abdication in favor of the Father. Delivering it up to the Father. But if he is the Father, how could he deliver it up to himself? He already had it. But if he already, if he were the Father, then when he delivered it up to the Father, he still had it, though he'd already delivered it up. This makes nonsense. This is characteristic of much of this argument. Furthermore, in Hebrews chapter 1, and also in Acts 7.55, Christ is said to have sat down 
at the right hand of his Father. How can you sit down on your own right hand? I saw a fellow attempt it one time. I was conducting a debate with a fellow in Abilene, Texas years ago who was trying to defend this position. Somebody had moved a rather large recorder and put it up on the stand. It was a console, console type that had a rather flat surface. Well, he was going to demonstrate how you could sit down on your own right hand. So he put his hand up here and sat down on it. But it happened to be convenient for him to sit down on his left hand. So I pointed out, no one of the fellows confused. He didn't know his right hand from his left. Uh, you imagine a fellow trying to defend his doctrine with no better effort than that. I often, in arguing that particular point, showed that if the Lord sat down at the right hand of the Father, there's somebody sitting on the left. Now, who was sitting on the left? Well, of course, there's no answer there. Furthermore, Jesus often declared that he would ascend to the Father. For example, in John 14, chapter 28. To do this, he had to leave the earth. But if he were the Father, he didn't have to ascend to him because he's already here in his own person. And yet, when our Lord was baptized, you remember he was on earth, a voice from heaven came saying, this is my beloved Son, the Holy Spirit came from heaven to earth in the form of a dove. You know how they try to answer that? They say, it just sounded like it came from heaven. I point out then, they make the Lord a ventriloquist. He made it, made it appear that his voice was coming from heaven when in reality it wasn't. It's coming from the earth here. That's deceptive in the first place. These arguments, of course, are without merit. Notice further, Jesus in John chapter 14 and verse 28 declared that his father was greater than he is. I pointed out this afternoon these passages that indicate an inferiority on the part of the Son have to do with that period of his humiliation here on earth uh, while he was uh, in the flesh. And so he himself said that his Father was greater than he. But if he is the Father, then was he greater than himself? He said that he did not speak of himself but of the Father. This is one of his affirmations. I do not speak of myself but of the Father. But if he were the Father, he did speak of himself. And so his statement would not be true. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus promised the disciples that he would send them another comforter, the Holy Spirit. But if he is the same person as the Holy Spirit, then they already had the comforter with them and didn't have to have one sent from heaven. In Mark 13, 32, we are told that God knows some things that the Son does. Look at this. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So if he is the Father, he knew some things he did. Now, how can this be? In the model prayer found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19, uh, 13 through 19, Jesus taught the disciples to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. If Jesus is the Father, he was here on earth, not in heaven at the time he taught them to pray to them. Jesus prayed to the Father that his disciples might be one. If Jesus and the Father are one in the same sense, was he praying that all Christians should just be one huge, big Christian? He prayed that all should be one, as he and his Father are one. God does not love some people, and these are those who deny the difference between the Father and the Son. Listen to this remarkable statement here. John 16, 27, 28. For the Father himself loveth you because you have loved me and have believed 
that I came forth from the Father. I came out from the Father, and I'm come under the world and go under the Father. Now, Jesus loves only those who believe that. This is but a type of the evidence that may be offered in support of the truth of this question. But I want to take up their arguments now. The allegations that they make with reference to these passages. I and my Father are one. But that doesn't mean they're one person. People may be one in a number of senses and yet not one in identity. As a matter of fact, a man and his wife are one. That doesn't mean they're one person. If it did, when a man gets sick, uh, a wife could take the medicine, he'd get well. It'd be a very convenient arrangement. They are one in the sense that their purposes are the same. Their aims, their goals, their work, united in one grand purpose. But they're not one person. And it's heresy so to teach. When it is said, Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. That can mean one of two things. Either to see Christ was to see the Father actually, or else representatively. Now, it has to be one or the other. It cannot be actually for this reason. First John chapter 4, verse 12, No man has seen God at any time. It's impossible to see the invisible God. As a matter of fact, if Christ had not come into the world, man might have claimed that God is unknowable. He couldn't approach him. couldn't see him. So it is not possible to see the divine essence. But you watch. They saw Jesus. He represented that divine essence on earth. Thus there was a part of the Godhead they could not see. There was a part of the Godhead they could see. Therefore, the part of the Godhead they could not see is not that part of the Godhead which they could see. It doesn't take a Solomon to see that. Take the statement in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, they think that that means that all the Godhead there was was Jesus. But that's not what that says. It's certainly not what it teaches. Bear in mind that in that particular context, Paul was establishing the fact that the Lord was sufficient for them rather than to deal in alien philosophies and resort to the pagan concepts that prevailed in that day of semi-gods or demigods and so on. He pointed out that in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt, by which it is meant every blessing that the Godhead is able to bestow is to be received through him. Every characteristic that deity has, he had. Every attribute that the Father had, he had. So he has everything that the Godhead has. That's the meaning of that statement. And so the effort fails. Now then, finally, with reference to there on this, with reference to their statement that we seek um, persons secretly, I don't think there's anything secret about this effort I'm making here tonight, do you? You ever know of us going around trying to prove secretly that there's three persons in the Godhead, so the effort is ridiculous and absurd and shows to what lengths men will go in an effort to sustain a false doctrine. This, friends, is the reason why debate is so important, why it accomplishes so much good, why it is possible for you to treat such a vast area of information that you can't effectively do in a sermon. Let me point out to you 
that there is really more teaching done in a week's debate, debating than a month's preaching, or maybe a year's preaching, so far as actually laying out the scriptures for people to see. Not only that, but in so doing, you're able to contrast the positions so that people can't fail to see where the truth is. Bear in mind that when denominational people listen to us preach, and though we set it out clearly, there's always the possibility that they may feel, well, I know, but uh, our preacher could make it just that clear if he were here. Well, if he's there and they see he can't make it that clear, then it shakes them up and leads them to recognize the importance of knowing the truth. It's a sad day that we no longer have such discussion. When I was a young preacher, we had a half a, I have a half a dozen or more of them a year. And the reason for it was that in that day, people had conviction. The denominational world wanted to be right. Many of them thought they were right. When their position was attacked, they showed a sense of loyalty to it. They rose up in defense of it. That disposition, friends, is beginning to manifest itself in the church. There are too many people today that have a very weak and inadequate and indefinite concept of what truth is. In fact, in many in the minds of many people, they just don't think it's important to be right. It's a tragedy that such is the case. Now, quickly because I'm certain that I have but very little more time. I want to deal with this uh, aspect of it that has to do with the baptismal uh, so-called formula. Jesus said, Go teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those who advocate the one person the Godhead say that the way this is to be carried out is to be baptized in the name of Jesus using this as a formula. And they go ahead and point out that there are four instances where that statement occurs in the book of Acts. Acts 2.38, where it says, Baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 8.16, where it says, Baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 10.48, where it says, They were baptized in the name of the Lord. Acts 21, or Acts 19, in the case of the... Um, twelve men over there, five, verse five. It is sad that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they point out that in every instance, baptism is said to have taken place in the name of Jesus. And therefore, the way to carry the commission out as demonstrated in Acts is to use that formula. I would point out two things about that. One, the significance is not in what the preacher says, but in what's done for the candidate. This is the important thing. The mere utterance of words is not significant. But let me call attention secondly to this. Contrary to their claim, there's no such unanimity of appearance of that statement as they insist. As a matter of fact, there's no uniformity at all. There are four occurrences and three variations. For example, Acts 2.38 says, in the name of Jesus Christ. But Acts um, 8.16 says, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, which one is the former? You can't use both of them. But then when you turn over to Acts 10 and uh, 48, you have still another. There it is said, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. So what happens to their formula? Of course, it's an absurdity to claim that there is a formula. The truth of business is, friends, and you get this because it's important to know and to use in your contacts with these people. We're the only people on earth who do baptize in the name of Jesus. And I say that for this reason. In the name of Jesus means by the authority of Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
means into relationship with them. How then do you baptize in the name of Jesus, the way Jesus authorized it? How did Jesus authorize it? Into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, now let me in the last moments here deal with that one claim that deceives some people, that there is no instance of the use of the Great Commission, of the terms set out in the Commission in the book of Acts. You remember that when Paul went to Ephesus and found those twelve disciples, he said to them this, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Believe there is the key for saved. That's the same thing as saying, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were saved? Now you bear in mind that the manifestation of the Spirit to people was by the laying on of hands. There were those who had been baptized by people who had no power of transmitting the Holy Spirit. Only the apostles. Only an apostle could transmit the Holy Spirit with a laying on of hand. So there was no implication that just because the person had been baptized that therefore he had received the miraculous manifestation of the Spirit. So what Paul said in effect is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were saved? Which was in effect saying, have you had hands laid on you in order that you may receive a miraculous measure of the Spirit? Their answer astounded him. They said to him, we haven't even so much as heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul strangely replied on the surface, well, into what, I'm quoting from the American Standard Version, into what then were you baptized? Bear in mind that he was not discussing water baptism. He was discussing the reception of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous reception of the Holy Spirit. Yet no sooner do they say, we haven't so much as heard of the Holy Spirit, when Paul thought of their baptism. Immediately he said, well, into what were you baptized? Why raise this? Well, he knew they couldn't have been baptized scripturally without having heard of the Holy Spirit because you're baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit. And so he saw immediately that there was something defective about their baptism. He immediately explained to them after they had said that they had not received the Holy Spirit and after that they indicated that they'd had John's baptism. He explained the difference between John's baptism and the baptism of the Great Commission, and then baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, as the Lord Jesus authorized them, into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad, friends, that our position is so substantial, that we can prove it with such ease and effectiveness, and that the Bible sets it out with such marvelous force? This is characteristic of every position that the churches of Christ hold. Be glad that you're a member of the Lord's body and defend it with your life. Are you here tonight? Have not bowed in humble submission to God's will. To be a Christian, you must believe, Hebrews 11:6. Repent of your sins, Luke 13:3. Confess your faith in the Lord, Romans 10:10. 10, 10. Be baptized into Christ, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. When you have thus done, the Lord will forgive you. He'll add you to his church. Of course, the one of which you read in the Bible. And if faithfully therein you'll live, when you've reached the end of your earthly pilgrimage, you'll be privileged to look back with happiness upon a life usefully and effectively spent, and onward to joys that are so beyond our apprehension that we can scarcely conceive of them here. If you have obeyed him but have faltered, tragic though such is, tonight come back. Know again the joy of salvation. Experience once more the peace of divine approval. Leave this place tonight 
Again, in the path of the just that will bring you ultimately to the perfect day. Why not tonight, while together, we stand and sing?